Kia ora and welcome to the Dawn Chorus. I'm Bernard Hickey. It is Monday the 10th of October on the Kaka. This is my daily podcast that goes out with a daily email newsletter to paying subscribers and it's all about the political economy. What's happening with housing affordability, climate change action and child poverty reduction. This week I wanted to well, this Monday, I wanted to have a look at the weekend election results in the council elections, which showed a significant swing to the centre-right in just about every council except for Wellington. This meant that a bunch of mayors were unseated, or uh, you saw uh, new mayors elected, which um, supported the centre-right. The same for a bunch of councillors, uh, either um, you saw a shift in the balance, if you like, from the centre-left to the centre-right, and essentially we saw a reaction uh, against the government's policies via this uh, election result. So what's going on here? What in particular were voters, ratepayers, upset about? And... What in particular does it mean for the various efforts to try to improve housing affordability, climate change action and child poverty reduction? So it's worth stepping back here a bit to try to understand who's actually voting in council elections and their various interests and why it's had such a big effect this time around. So we know that turnout rates in council elections are around 40% and have been falling for the last 20 years or so. That's significantly lower than the vote out rates or the voting rates in the general elections, the central government elections. They have been falling too for the last 30 or 40 years, but have stopped falling in the last uh, seven or eight years or so. Now, why is this? Why is turnout so much lower in local elections rather than central government elections? And who actually is turning out and who isn't? Well, we know there is a democratic deficit and a very wide one at local government level. Effectively, the people who vote the most tend to be older, they tend to be homeowners, they tend to be Pākehā, and they tend to live in what you'd call the leafy suburbs often inner city or close to city suburbs in the big cities of Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, Tauranga, uh, Hamilton and Queenstown. And they are typically older, wealthier, own more assets and are more involved in their communities. To give you an idea of the scale of this, for example, in Otara and Papatoetoe in the elections over the weekend, turnout rates there were 20% or lower. And in some of the uh, leafier suburbs, turnout rates were significantly over 40%. Now, uh, when you actually look at the relationships between home ownership and local council voting, there is a significant positive uh, relationship, the higher the home ownership rate, the higher the voting rate per city. And you can see too that the younger the voters, the lower the turnout rate in cities. The end result is that in some of the big city areas, the, particularly the wards closer to the centre of town, 
Voting rates amongst young renters, particularly young Māori, young Pacifica and uh, young first-generation migrants, can be less than 10%. Voting rates amongst older, so we're talking higher than, uh, older than 50 homeowners in the suburbs, uh, can be higher than 70 to 80%. So the difference in turnout rates can be anywhere between four to eight times greater for older homeowners than younger renters. This means that uh, people in the suburbs who own homes tend to have the most power, understandably, in council affairs. But it also says something about the perceived powers of councils versus central government. And it's worth taking a bit of a trip through history here to explain not only how New Zealand's relationship between the Crown, central government, and local government, councils, has changed over the many decades, but also how it's become more unbalanced, and how unbalanced that relationship is in Aotearoa New Zealand versus the rest of the world. So let's go back to the 1850s, in the immediate wake of uh, the Treaty of Waitangi when the then colonial government set up six provincial governments. Now these were designed as pseudo-state governments in the same way that you have state governments in Australia. So it was Auckland, Taranaki, Wellington, Nelson, Canterbury, Otago. And these were the provinces, they had their own parliaments, their own central governments and between 1854 and 1876 uh, they were operating a lot like state governments do now in Australia or federal governments federal state governments in the United States and in many European countries that has uh, that changed though in 1876 partly because of the result of a very activist prime minister at the time Julius Vogel who was on a major push to expand the railway network. At that time, everything was seen as all about uh, rolling out a very strong and unified railway network throughout New Zealand. And the problem was these various state governments, provincial governments, had uh, lain lots of different types of railways, so different gauges, different widths of uh, rail tracks, which made it difficult to create a proper network. And uh, also, um, we had some bizarre things like in Southland, uh, for example, the local government there laid out its railways on wooden rails, which then promptly cracked and rotted. Anyway, so the end result was 1876, the provincial governments were disbanded and the power really started to settle with central governments. And... That continued on through until the mid-1980s. And over that time, particularly from the 1930s to the 1970s, there was a different relationship between central and local government. It was more cooperative. There was certainly more shared purpose. And the government of the day, the governments of the day, both national and labour, were much keener on development. So they had relatively high tax rates and that meant that a lot of that money was used by the central government 
to either do development directly, build dams, motorways, power networks, or was done in conjunction with councils so that councils were given money and help and design uh, uh, help and guidance and guarantees to ensure that there was plenty of development, that all these new suburbs and motorways were built and that there was enough infrastructure to cope with quite strong population growth during those baby boom eras. Essentially, government, both central and local government, had a political agreement, which was to ensure that there were plenty of homes, plenty of roads, plenty of water for all of these baby boom kids that were being produced by the heroes of World War II. And that continued on really until the late 70s, early 1980s. Then, of course, in 1984, the then Labour government under David Longy and Roger Douglas decided to reform the economy. And you saw a massive set of reforms in the late 1980s, culminating in a whole set of changes in 1989, which had a massive impact on this relationship between central and local government. Firstly, you had the passing of the Public Finance Act, which really centralised and codified the rules about how money was raised by central government, how it was spent and how it was invested. And in effect, it meant that the control was much tighter around Wellington and there was an overall view that the government had become too involved in investing in infrastructure. It was believed it did it badly, and that there'd been too much help given to generations in the form of subsidies for infrastructure development, and that these public subsidies needed to stop to have a level playing field. There was also an assumption in the late 80s, early 90s, that New Zealand's population was going to flatten out or be stagnant, and that was because of an ageing population and not a lot of migration at that point. So, uh, from 1989 onwards, you saw, uh, particularly after the 1989 um, huge amalgamation of over 800 councils into 86, you saw a change in that relationship. Government didn't help councils as much with infrastructure. Basically, they didn't see the need for new infrastructure. Why would you when you don't have any population growth? And councils only had the power to raise money from rates, mostly, and then very in a very limited way from things like fees, parking fees, uh, library fees, consent fees, those sorts of things. Also in 1989, you saw the creation of the Resource Management Act. It didn't actually pass until 1991, but it was a bipartisan effort to essentially stop development of the type that was enabled under the Public Works Act. By the way, the Public Works Act was started in 1870 by Julius Vogel, to enable the very fast and aggressive uh, building of railway networks through the country. And it was used under Muldoon to ram through big dams and motorways and various other things. So the Resource Management Act was a reaction to that, to stop uh, unfettered, aggressive central government development. So the power to grant consents, resource consents, building consents, was handed over to local government. However, uh, in the process of doing this, there wasn't an increase in funding from central government for local government to do this extra work. Also, some of the liabilities associated with consenting landed effectively on local government 
after central government ease the rules around building. So we saw these leaky building disasters of the 90s and 2000s where the government, central government in Wellington, said, yep, you can build with anything, let's get the building going. And councils then granted the consents and later on were the last man standing when hundreds of millions of dollars worth of claims came through for leaky buildings. And quakey buildings are, are an issue as well. So over that time, with no or very few grants from government for councils for infrastructure and an increasing workload of new regulatory requirements on councils, they felt under pressure and started to, in a passive-aggressive way, push back. So they made it more difficult to build new homes. They didn't consent easily new greenfields developments. They didn't build new roads and libraries and parkways and all of the things you need for new housing. And this is in part because central government had had ne neither given them the funds or the permission or had a negotiation about fast population growth. And we still haven't. So in, from 2002 to 2005, we saw a massive increase in our population growth from less than 1% to at points over 2%. And again, from 2011-12 to 2019, remember these are both forms of government, we saw a significant increase in population growth from 0.5% at the low in 2011 to 2.2% in 2017 and again in 2019. So what we saw was massive population growth, not enough infrastructure spend by the central or local government, and the end result, along with falling interest rates and the tax advantages staying for uh, le leveraged residential land, was a massive increase in residential land values, in effect pulling forward value from the future and giving it to the owners of assets now, and doing it through restricting land supply. So uh, we're now at a point where the government, and this is both Labour and National to an extent, realise that they need to enable a lot more housing supply to solve some of these issues. However, they haven't really addressed the core of the problem, which is providing incentives and funding and permission to councils to do a lot more infrastructure investment. So for example, the, the government now has a, an essential rule, which is you can't increase government debt beyond 30% of GDP. And it has also a, an agreement, a tacit agreement between National and Labour that you won't increase core crown tax revenues beyond 30% of GDP. So that limits your ability to raise new taxes, in particular wealth or capital gains taxes, or income taxes, and if you want to enable population growth that's very strong, you have to invest in infrastructure or be landed with the consequences. So what we've seen over recent years is increasing frustration between central government who blame councils for not doing the investment, councils who blame central government for forcing them to do lots of different work, extra work and take on extra risks without the funding, and a whole bunch of local voters going, hang on a minute, I didn't vote for all this population growth. I don't want all these people living in my backyard and clogging up my motorways. And I don't want to pay the higher rates or have the higher debt that goes with it. So we're in this 
catch-22 situation where central government won't pay, local government won't pay, ratepayers won't allow local government to do the investment, taxpayers and voters in central government, government elections won't allow central government to do the investment, but central government has enabled strong population growth in part to juice GDP growth and because, frankly, the system works if you're a homeowner. And remember, we have a massive de democratic deficit at local government level. And although it's much smaller, it's still there at central government level in that homeowners are much more likely to vote than young renters. So, what's just happened? Well, in the last year or two, particularly the last year, local, the central government, the Labour-run government, wanted to solve some of these infrastructure funding issues and some of the infrastructure investment issues without changing the deal. So the deal is you can't have taxes higher than 30% and you can't have debt that's higher than 30% in the core crown. So how do you do the borrowing if you can't increase core crown debt or revenue? Well, you can create some vaguely publicly owned assets that aren't on the core crown balance sheet and which aren't actually controlled by local government or directly by central government and therefore aren't counted as core crown debt. Also, these vaguely owned central assets, and these of course are the four water authorities that the government is trying to set up under three waters, would uh, have raised debt in their own right and also of course start charging for water services in those areas that aren't already charging and uh, effectively takes away the democratic choice of local government whether or not to charge for water and whether or not to invest in extra water assets and in particular improving the quality of sewerage and, and or drinking water and stormwater to try to improve the environment. So the government thought that councils would embrace this idea because councils don't like to have to go back to ratepayers and ask for water charges or ask to take on big new debt or higher rates to pay for all this water infrastructure, which everyone agrees is needed. And the government didn't want to ask permission from central voters, central government voters, for a higher tax rate uh, in the form of water charges or higher debt in the form of higher water debt. So that was the three waters fudge. Unfortunately, it got messed up with the backlash from the provinces against co-governance, which I actually don't think is a, a real issue of concern. Um, no one's suggesting that uh, iwi will um, collect large chunks of revenue from these assets um, or uh, exercise um, painful control. There are lots of precedents throughout Aotearoa New Zealand of co-governance being perfectly sensible and constructive and uh, consensual um, across the community. However, uh, when people are under stress, they don't like change. And at the moment, a lot of change is being forced through. On the other side, this is apart from Three Waters, now let's look at housing. The government, of course, has forced through the densification changes, the medium density residential standards, and then the enhanced housing supply standards, both of which are designed to increase the number and density of uh, apartments, townhouses, close to the center of town. 
Now, it turns out the people who live in leafy suburbs close to the centre of town don't like this. <laughs> they don't want someone stealing their daylight or parking uh, in their driveway. So they have opposed this via councils. Uh, and what's interesting about this is this election is essentially a vote of no confidence in densification and also in the general shift towards trying to get people out of their cars and into buses and onto bikes and walking, which really requires mode shift. And in particular, changing out uh, lanes from being for cars only to being for cyclists and walkers only, taking motorways away from suburban double cab ute drivers. And that's the reaction. So uh, what have we seen? Wayne Brown elected in uh, Auckland with a mandate to essentially try to stop uh, more cycleways that um, disrupt motorists, to stop densification and to basically wind down uh, local government spending and to yell at central government to give them more money. Uh, in uh, Wellington, there, that was the exception to the rule, if you like, uh, where a Green Mayor was elected and a reasonably centre-left council was elected. But elsewhere, Christchurch, Dunedin uh, and many others, you've seen the centre-left defeated and replaced by the centre-right. And essentially a, a boomer homeowner backlash against pro-cycling, pro-density policies. What does this mean? Well, uh, we're now going to have a standoff between the new councils and new mayors versus the government. You might see the government abandon co-governance because they realise the extent of this backlash and know they have to get elected in a year's time and at the moment they're behind in the polls, often for the same reasons. The irony here, of course, is that one of the uh, um, co-conspirators is perhaps too strong a word, one of the co co-founders of the Townhouse Nation density requirement in the Enhanced Housing Supply Bill was national itself. And we will see how long that densification push led by Nicola Willis and Chris Bishop lasts under Christopher Luxon going into the election next year because there's an awful lot of centre-right voters who are not keen on that either. So... Um, in my view, this cements in the multi-decade and massive intergenerational transfer of wealth from the future um, residents and unborn tamariki uh, to existing landowners. And this move to frustrate densification and mode shift will not only cement in that um, intergenerational wel welfare transfer, but also frustrate efforts to reverse it and to improve housing affordability, climate change, emissions reduction, and child poverty reduction. Uh, I'll, in coming podcasts, talk about potential ways in which this can be um, reversed uh, potential policy solutions, ideas that are out there, and there are some uh, from both sides of politics, and uh, try to understand uh, where the gaps are and this, the shafts of light in the debate to uh, try to uh, improve things. That was my dawn chorus for Monday the 10th of October. Ka kite anō.